Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. The hunt grows tense. It's been three days since you last caught the trail of deer through the wilderness. And your hunger, the hunger of the tribe, mounts toward a breaking point. And so, with bow and arrow, fire and amulet, you've wandered beyond the limits of the fall hunt. You've tracked your quarry into the rocky hills beyond, and here, amid these strange, rocky outcroppings, you happen upon a cave. You know animals sometimes venture into these places for shelter, perhaps water or salt, so you venture in as well. You find nothing in the cave save a few dry sticks, but as night falls, you build a small fire against the cold. As the flames illuminate the cavern walls, you suddenly make out the shattered form of bones in the rock, bones as solid as the stone itself. In the dancing glow, they describe a form you've never seen before, and it instantly makes you wonder where the deer have gone, what things beyond the scope of your experience thrive here amid the stony hills you've dared to hunt. For the bones describe a thing twice the height of a man, horned and clawed, a talon-toothed, and with a rib cage large enough to swallow you, your family, the entire tribe, all of it within the dark hell of its hunger. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, what were you getting at in that little story there? Well, uh, basically about finding some bones. Uh, not knowing what those bones are from and having to sort of fill in the, the holes, fill in the details, well, maybe with a little myth-making. Yeah, I want to put you in, in just a strange frame of mind you might not be used to. We we all know about fossils. Yeah. We, we all know now that there are things that lived a long time ago that sometimes uh, undergo a mineralization process where their remains become sort of... Uh, Locked in stone and preserved in ways that can keep them keep them hold their holding their shape across the eons. Yeah, an inherently incomplete fossil record of mm-hmm. what came before. Yeah, but try to imagine you don't know any of that. You don't know how old the Earth is. You don't know anything about geology, mm-hmm. sediment uh, replacement, or mineralization. Anything about soil chemistry? Any of that. Uh, you're, you're just, you know, maybe a shepherd or something like right. that a few thousand years ago. And you come across gigantic bones in the ground that are bigger than any animal you've ever seen and look nothing like it is for, uh, some animal with a gigantic lizard-like head and sharp teeth. What would you think you were looking at? Well, uh, as our uh, character in, the, in our introductory piece here uh, seemed to think, uh, that perhaps this is an exact, an existing creature that's somewhere out there uh, in the world, and I should be afraid of it. Yeah. Uh, but then also, I'm, I'm probably going to know enough about bones, enough about actual organisms to realize there's something fishy about this one. These bones are like, are like stone. Yeah. There's, you know, there's something. There's something unnatural going on here as well. Yeah. Uh, I was having this thought recently when my wife Rachel and I went to New York, and one of the places we went there was the American Museum of Natural History, ah. uh, which is just an absolute delight. If you've never been, it is wonderful. You should also commit more than one day of your trip to it, uh, you, because there's no way you can see it all in a day, and it's just absolutely wonderful. I recommend it as a pure experience just to go see, for example, the dinosaur fossils and stuff like that there mm-hmm. and their charmingly retro dioramas of old uh, <laughs> uh, animals and all that. But uh, it's it's not only just a great visual experience, it's also wonderful science education because the museum exhibits do an excellent job of not just telling you what we know about the things you're looking at, but also helping you understand how we came to know what we know about the things you're looking at and uh, what the what the method behind and reasoning behind what we know is. Hmm. So it's it's uh, a wonderful monument of scientific education for for kids and people of all ages, really. But anyway, did wh- people wander in not knowing what fossils were? No, and they I were d- asking what are, what dragons are these? I, I don't think they did, but only, if only you could, uh, <laughs> because that I was having that thought. I'm looking at, at these bones walking around and thinking, man, if I didn't know anything, I would think these were monsters. I would be like, where are the live ones? <laughs> uh, I need to get away from them. And so this is what we want to talk about today, the idea that 
fossils and uh, not just fossils, but remains fossilized or not, bones of extinct animals could have inspired visions of mythological creatures throughout history. We, we want to essentially focus on the topic of geomythology. Yes. Now, if you, I just want to have one quick note about myths here. If you turn into the previous episode that Christian and I did, Unraveling the Mythic, you know that there are various ways to tackle mythology. Though most, uh, most agree that it's ultimately polyfunctional. Uh, that, that means that, you know, a myth, uh, myth has s- several simultaneous purposes, uh, within a culture. Yeah, you know, it's not just uh, you know it's like it's like the the, the Swiss Army knife of uh, of like cultural uh, energies, I guess. Yes, I, I I think that scientists and science minded people often have a tendency to over represent the role of naturalistic explanation when trying to think about the origins of myths. And what I mean by that is, uh, if you're, you're you're a sciencey kind of person. You're more likely to say, okay, here's a myth about, um, a god who throws thunderbolts. The, this myth was created in order to explain why lightning happens during storms. Right. And I'm not saying that's not part of our mythological structures. I think it absolutely is. Yeah, I think most of the, most of the better arguments, the more modern arguments, at least acknowledge that that is part of it. That is one of the functions in the polyfunctional, um, uh, explanation. Yeah, that's the point I'm making. I I think myths are definitely truly meant to be explanatory for natural phenomenon, but that's not all they are. They're also about moralizing to people and they're also about representing social norms and all kinds of things that uh, you know they're they're as you say polyfunctional yeah so you know it's important for us to to keep in mind that a mythical monster or beast is all is almost always more than a mere uh, you know proto scientific explanation and a mere um, a geo mythological explanation but the geo mythological explanations I, I think can be very helpful yeah yeah uh, at times, they, they, they seem to just hit the nail right on the head. Other times, they at least raise some interesting questions about how fossils, which, which uh, ancient people undoubtedly came across as they, as they, they, you know, dug in the earth, as they farmed, as they explored their world, they would, they found these things. We know they found these things. But then they had to somehow make sense of them without uh, a modern understanding of fossils. Yeah. So what is the concept of geomythology? We should offer a definition. And I'm, I'm going to read a quote from uh, the Encyclopedia of Geology that was r- an entry written by Adrian Mayer, who is, uh, who is a name who's going to figure very big into this episode because she's one of the, the biggest names right now in the, in the whole field of geomythology, but especially in linking ancient mythological creatures to fossil evidence and, and remains of extinct animals. So she writes, quote, Geomythology, also called legends of the earth, myths of observation, natural knowledge, and physico-mythology. I like that last one. Physico-mythology. That's good. Is the study of etiological oral traditions created by pre-scientific cultures to explain, in poetic metaphor and mythological imagery, geological phenomena such as volcanoes, earthquakes, floods, fossils, and other natural features of the landscape. Now, in, in this entry, she goes on to uh, relate stuff about all kinds of geology, like uh, explanations of myths that would explain why a volcano is erupting. You know, at Mount Etna, there happens to be a dragon underneath this uh, volcano who's trying to escape, and mm-hmm. that might explain why sometimes melted stone comes out the top of it. Or, uh, you know, just one example, uh, why earthquakes are being caused by gods. The way the landscape is shaped, the topography of it, has sometimes that has a mythological explanation, like, uh, you know, the great uh, the combat creation myths, like mm-hmm. the god slays a monster, and then the monster's dead body becomes the earth, and, you know, the ridges on its spine are the mountains and things like that. Uh, so th- there's just a wonderful wealth of great links between the earth and its geological features and the mythology that people come up with. Uh, but fossils are a big part of this. And so uh, Mayer, Mayer is a Stanford folklorist and historian of science who studies ways in which knowledge about the natural world, often knowledge that we could consider scientific or proto-scientific, appears in pre-scientific myths and traditions. And she's going to come up repeatedly in this episode, so we thought we should establish her 
Um, she, she's written a lot on this topic. Yeah, two of her key books. There's 2007's Fossil Legends of the First Americans, and then her 2011 book, The First Fossil Hunters, Dinosaurs, Mammoths, and Myth in Greek and Roman Times. The, that's a reissue of the book. The 2011 oh, yeah. version is. It's updated, I think, with some stuff. Okay, that. so that one actually predates the America's book. Yes, okay, it does. Cool. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it tackles, uh, antiquity, you know, looking at, for example, Greek legends. Yeah, and at times she she, uh, she points out that so many of these these monsters that we discuss, they often what they break out of the ground. They have origins in the earth, or perhaps under the earth. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's just one of the the many different, uh, and, it, and it's going to vary depending on what the particular myth is, because certainly you have you have mythical creatures that are terrestrial in nature, that are celestial in nature, mm-hmm. that are tied to the ocean or the rivers or to the caves. Uh, there's a a lot of variety here. Needless to say, there are so many different mythic creatures, some related to one another, but they're all going to have particular ties to their own time and place and the people who dreamt about them. And we're not going to have time to cover them all here today. Right. But we should start looking at some examples of uh, of arguments that certain mythological creatures and monsters are truly inspired by fossil evidence. And one of the big ones, I think the one we really need to start with is the griffin. Okay. Uh, because this is, this is something that's been, uh, widespread. I, I think this has become sort of well known that, uh, there's an idea that griffins are inspired by dinosaur bones. And so traditionally a griffin is a creature said to have the body of a lion with the head, beak, and wings of an eagle. And in ancient Greek sources, the griffin is often mentioned in association with a tribe called the Aramaspi, which were traditionally said to all have only one eye on their head. Ah, so uh, they're kind of cyclopses. Yeah, the the Aramaspi were like these uh, these Central Asian Scythian type people uh, who who harvested gold from the fields. Of the of the griffins, and this is great. The whole thing about them all having one eye on on their head. Herodotus, the Greek historian Herodotus, expresses some skepticism about this that I find really funny. I want to quote Herodotus now, uh, as translated by George Rawlinson. Quote. The northern parts of Europe are very much richer in gold than any other region, but how it is procured, I have no certain knowledge. The story runs that the one-eyed Aramaspi purloin it from the griffins, but here, too, I am incredulous and cannot persuade myself that there is a race of men born with one eye who in all else resemble the rest of mankind. Nevertheless, it seems to be true that the extreme regions of the earth, which surround and shut up within themselves all other countries, produce the things which are the rarest and which men reckon the most beautiful. And so that's Herodotus writing in the 5th century BCE. Uh, and I find it great that he's skeptical about the one-eyed humans. <laughs> he's like, I don't buy it, but not necessarily about the griffins. And I wonder why. Could it be that in ancient times, people with a skeptical fairly evidence-based epistemological framework might have reason to believe in some mythical creatures. And if so, what could that reason be? I, one one part of me says that it could just be not knowing, right? We've never been to the ends of the earth. Who right. knows what creatures live there? Yeah, the the, the understanding of the time of, uh, of, of Earth's diverse um, life forms uh, was was very incomplete. I mean, it's still incomplete, but it was even more incomplete at the time. So the idea that something like a griffin existed... Sure, that's not out of keeping with our experience of other creatures. Uh-huh. Uh And so uh, a couple more ancient sources about the griffins. The Roman author, Pliny the Elder, summarizes what he's learned about the griffins while talking about the Aramaspi. So writing in his Natural History in the first century CE, Pliny says, quote, Many authorities, the most distinguished being Herodotus and Aristeus of Proconesus, write that these people, and he's referring to the Aramaspi, uh, or arm posse, sorry, wage continual war with the griffins, a kind of wild beast with wings, as commonly reported, that digs gold out of mines, which the creatures guard and the Aramaspi try to take from them, both with remarkable covetousness. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, that's a nice uh, sort of like he's moralizing there a little bit, right? Yeah. Adding some kind of uh, motivations. Uh, but then here's one more long one that will give you a, a pretty good picture of the ancient view of the Griffin. So this is uh, Alien writing on animals translated by Schofield in uh, his Greek natural history, second century A.D. And I've made a couple of elisions just for brevity because um, this is a long quote. But Alien writes... I have heard that the Indian animal, the griffin, is a quadruped like a lion, that it has claws of enormous strength and that they resemble those of a lion. Men commonly report that it is winged and that the feathers along its back are black and those on its front are red, while the actual wings are neither but are white. It has a beak like an eagle's and a head, too, just as artists portrayed in pictures and sculpture. Its eyes are like fire. It builds its lair among the mountains, and although it is not possible to capture the full-grown animal, they do take the young ones. And the people of Bactria, who are neighbors of the Indians, say that the griffins guard gold in those parts, that they dig it up and build their nests with it, and that the Indians carry off any that falls from them. The Indians, however, deny that they guard the aforesaid gold, for the griffins have no need for it, and if that is what they say, then I, at any rate, think that they speak the truth, but that they themselves come to collect the gold while the griffins, fearing for their young ones, fight with the invaders. They engage, too, with other beasts and overcome them without difficulty, but they will not face the lion or the elephant. Accordingly, the natives, dreading the strength of these animals, do not set out in quest of the gold by day, but arrive by night, for at that season they are less likely to be detected. Now, the region where the griffins live and where the gold is mined is a dreary wilderness, and the seekers after the aforesaid substance arrive a thousand or two strong, armed and bringing spades and sacks and watching for a moonless night, they begin to dig. Now, if they contrive to elude the griffins, they reap a double advantage, for they not only escape with their lives, but they also take home their freight. So, this is pretty outlandish sounding. Yeah. But I am already seeing a connection here between this creature, this fantastic creature, Uh and the earth, with things mined from the earth. Exactly right, and you are not the first person to notice that. This figures in to uh, Adrian Mayer's theory about the griffins and the uh, and a specific type of dinosaur we'll get into in a minute. So the griffin, head of an eagle, body of a lion, lives in a desolate or desert wilderness where gold can be found. It's got wings, claws, scary as heck, screaming death, diving at you out of the sky while you are blinded by desert sun glinting off a mountain of gold. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it builds its nests out of gold and just jealously guards the golden treasures or not. Maybe it doesn't care about gold, but either way, they're pilfering humans who it does battle with. Uh, the Greek and Roman legends often associate griffins with the north and the east. So India, northern Europe, or Central Asia, the land of the Scythians. Uh, in real life, that was a group. The Scythians were a large group of horse riding peoples who occupied Central Asia, and the extent of their empire overlapped the desert in Asia, now known as the Gobi. And there's a curious thing about the Gobi Desert. It is a place where fossils are not nearly as difficult to find as they are in many other places. Uh, according to the paleontologists within the, uh, the, the archives of the American Museum of Natural History, it was not historically uncommon to come across fossils of the dinosaur Protoceratops peeking naked out of eroding hillsides. In the Gobi Desert. Ah, and this is, of course, one with kind of a, a beaked uh, yeah. appearance. So it's a ceratopsid. Uh, it's a four-legged dinosaur, and it has so it's a quadruped, and it has yeah a frill along the top of its head and a beaked mouth. It's kind mm-hmm. of interesting. Okay, uh, but here's one account that was uh, from the American Museum of Natural History exhibit that they they did on this comparison between dinosaurs and griffins. Uh, and so it's an account related uh, from 1993 when the uh, AMNH paleontologist Michael Novacek and paleontologist Mark Norrell were on an expedition in the Gobi Desert in which they came across a skeleton of a dinosaur, this protoceratops dinosaur. Uh, so Novacek described the scene in these words, quote, We stopped at a low saddle between the hills. 
Before I could remove the keys from the ignition, Mark sang out excitedly. Several feet away, near the very apex of the saddle, was a stunning skull and partial skeleton of a protoceratops, a big fellow whose beak and crooked fingers pointed west to our small outcrop, like a griffin pointing the way to a guarded treasure. We continued to pounce on precious specimens with remarkable consistency. Mark would sing out, Skull! And almost on cue, I would find one, too. The surface of the gentle slopes and shallow gullies was splattered with white patches of fossils, as if someone had emptied a paint can in a random fashion over the ground. So they're just tripping over fossils. And and it's not, uh, you don't have to do a detailed excavation to try to find one, apparently, in this region, they can be seen by the naked eye. Anybody who would happen to come across them would see these huge beasts hmm. with four legs and beaks. Ooh. Hmm. So Adrian Mayor has, over the years, developed a fairly strong argument that these protoceratops fossils uh, have points of agreement with the griffin legend. So they're quadrupedal. They've got a beak. The griffin has an eagle's beak, but a quadrupedal body like a lion. Uh, that's sort of, that, that goes in line with the shape of these dinosaurs. It's got the bony frill, uh, and, and she argues that the, the bony frill sometimes gets broken and leaves these stumps there, which could have been interpreted as the crests you often see on griffin heads or the ears you often see on illustrations of ancient griffins. Uh, and sometimes the elongated shoulder blades, the shoulder blades that, if you look at a protoceratops skeleton, they have shoulder blades that kind of poke backward and look strange, and they look kind of like wing bones, honestly. So that could explain griffins being said to have wings. And then, of course, there's the location. So these are found in the bone beds of Central Asia in Mongolia and China, near where the Scythians would have been mining gold. These alluvial gold deposits are, are near where protoceratops fossils are found, and these uh, these griffin descriptions seem to appear in the ancient Greek literature around the time that the Greeks would have been interacting and trading with the Scythians. So I think that's a really interesting argument, and it yeah. essentially it goes uh, not necessarily that the there were no griffin ideas, uh, before the uh, the Scythians interacted with Protoceratops fossils, but that if they came across these fossils, it could have very much have shaped and steered the Griffin legend to be, to the strong version that we see of it repeated so often in this ancient Greek literature. Yeah, and that's a motif that we we come back to again and again with these examples, and, and I think it's very important to to drive home because it's on one hand you could very much take the approach that like oh a primitive person saw this bone and then a myth was born of it. Right. But but as it's we probably say, not that simple. Yeah, probably not that simple. Myths are more complicated than that. Yeah. It's also not impossible, but not impossible. But it seems like the 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 more believable version the, uh, of of the encounter is that you have a pre-existing myth yeah. that involves some sort of fantastic beast or another. Then you find these fossils, mm-hmm. and without you know an, without a, a you know an, an actual understanding of how fossils work, without a without a better explanation, you turn to that script as an explanation for what you see here. Uh-huh. So the myth informs your interpretation of the fossils, and then the fossils may enforce and and, and change your interpretation of the myth itself. Yeah. And then you move into a new uh, a new age that's informed both by the myth and the fossil. Yeah. Uh, so so I do think we should come back to uh, to exactly that idea later on about uh, how how these myths would be formed and mm-hmm. what what level of explanation we need for them as we encounter them. But for this one specific example of uh, Protoceratops fossils or other dinosaur fossils in the Gobi Desert or in Central Asia more generally. Uh, inspiring the the Scythian griffins that guard the gold, the uh, paleontologist and paleo artist Mark Witten wrote an interesting blog post I read that, that essentially is a pretty well researched disagreement with the idea that Protoceratops could have served as the inspiration for the griffin, and and he makes some pretty decent arguments against it. Uh, for one thing, according to Witten, the timeline is not very favorable to the Protoceratops. 
Protoceratops Griffin hypothesis, uh, because he says it sort of ignores evidence of Griffin lore from before the seventh century BCE when, uh, when the Scythians could have introduced this, these Protoceratops inspired ideas to the Greeks. For example, one, uh, one example he gives is this fourth millennium BCE depiction of a Griffin from the ancient city of Susa in what is now Iran. Um, and so there's this long tradition of Griffin iconography predating the supposed Scythian interaction with the Greeks. Um, but then again, there, there could also be a sort of like myth and fossil back and forth, like we were just talking about. Uh, Witten also argues that Mayer's hypothesis is based on sort of a narrow selection of Griffin representation types, because he says there are actually, you know, a lot of different ways to depict a Griffin. And he's saying that the Protoceratops Griffin hypothesis is based on uh, selection bias in Griffin imagery sampling. So sort of cherry picking the Griffins that best fit the Protoceratops, whereas there are other types of Griffins that don't look very much like that. Yeah, this and this will come up again, too, with some other uh, monsters that we're going to discuss here. Uh-huh. Uh, and then uh, a few more. One uh, one thing he says is the griffin doesn't really need an explanation in exotic anatomy of extinct species because it well could well have been imagined simply by combining elements of existing animals known to these cultures at the time. Yeah. You don't have to have seen a quadruped with a beak. Uh, you can just imagine an eagle's head, which you've seen, on a lion's body, which you've seen. Uh, so th- that argument, that makes some sense to me, and I do want to come back to that idea also. Um, he also argues that the earliest Greek accounts of griffin lore come from semi-mythical stories. Quote, why should we consider griffins to have any more basis in reality than the gods, monsters, or strange human races also mentioned in these stories? Uh, if griffins are based on actual phenomena, do we need to seek rationales for these other creatures too? And I, you know, one thing that comes to my mind is, well, yeah, okay. So if we need to seek a rational explanation for the inspiration of the griffin myth, do we also need it for the arm posse with the one-eyed people? Mm-hmm. Um, do, do we have to figure, well, were the people who all had one eye from some genetic uh, kind of condition? I, I don't think so, but also I think this point seems a little weak to me because everybody acknowledges that griffins are mythical and the stories about them are not historically true. So the question is whether the myths are pure imaginative fiction or fictions inspired by real-world objects and events, and I think either could likely be the case. There's no way to uh, automatically favor one or the other. I think the fossil link is just an argument for the latter. And another point he makes is that Protoceratops fossils are, uh, you know, have not been found at the sites of the Scythian gold mines, but rather within a few hundred miles of them. So, you know, it's not like we saw them there at the gold mine. Right. That would be a pretty good argument, I think. Yes, yes, if we actually had seen them there. Uh, but yeah, so anyway, there, there are arguments for, there are arguments against right. that, uh, that the protoceratops or another dinosaur, quadrupedal dinosaur with a beak could have inspired griffin ideas. And uh, I, I think, I don't know, I, I'm not sure where I come down on it, but I think uh, it's still an interesting idea, but he, uh, Witten makes some, some interesting arguments against it. Yeah. But that is by no means the only mythical creature that has been uh, said to have been inspired possibly by fossils, right? Right. I mean, we've been talking about one-eyed folks, uh, so <laughs> that leads us, of course, to the Cyclops. Oh, man. Um, I we, love a good Cyclops, oh, don't you? Yeah, yeah I, I do, too. And, and, you know, we see a lot of variety. That's the thing. We always see more variety than uh, than you might expect. Mm-hmm. So, like, with the Cyclops, you see some artistic depictions where there's just one... Um, one orifice for the eye right. in the head, just one one eye hole. Sometimes there are three, and two of them are fleshed over. Uh, so there's a lot of variety there as well. And indeed, we see a, a number of different explanations for where this might have come from. I've read that uh, this might, might have been informed by the forehead lanterns of Pelasgian miners, or perhaps the protective eye patches that were worn by blacksmiths. Huh. This prevented sparks from blinding both eyes at once. You'd always have one covered. Uh, but the the theory that I think most people have probably encountered, and you either probably encountered this in a school textbook or perhaps at the zoo, um, and that is that the that school that the skulls of elephants, particularly the skulls of prehistoric Mediterranean dwarf elephants, could have informed our idea of the Cyclops. Because you look at this skull and you see this massive hole there in the middle that, of course, is a nasal opening. Yes, for the trunk. Right. 
But you might think, hey, that looks like an eye socket, and the, the head looks kind of humanoid. Maybe that's what's going on here. And indeed, um, Mayer chimes in on this as well. And uh, the, the argument here is that the myth may have uh, originated or at least gathered some, some steam via the discovery of elephant skull fossils, namely the prehistoric Mediterranean dwarf elephants, or another particular one is uh, Dionithrum gigantum, which would have been a, would have been a 15-foot, 4.6-meter-high elephant creature. But mm-hmm. uh, unlike modern elephants, these guys had, had uh, four, 4.5-foot, 1.3-meter uh, backward-pointing tusks. What? Yeah. So Backward? Yeah, you'll have to look at a, an image of this because the, the tusk, it, the, they they kind of look like a chin beard, like some sort of a, a chin beard that has been, uh, like been those, shaped. Like those braided devil beards. Yeah, like kind of like a braided devil beard, yeah, with uh-huh. a bit forks and is kind of turning backwards towards the individual's chest. Chin fangs. Yeah. Chin fangs. Kind of chin fangs. The elephant would have probably used these to strip barks from trees or possibly dig up plants, but... No. No. (laughs) Only use them for draining the blood out of enemies. Yeah. But, but, But you look at it, and it does look like a humanoid skull, a very monstrous humanoid skull that for some reason has a skeletal basis for its goatee. Uh, and has something like a <laughs> a third eye hole or a large central eye hole in the middle of its head. Uh-huh. Now, a geologist from the University of Crete's uh, Natural History Museum believe these creatures probably swam over from Turkey via the islands of Rhodes and Carpathos to reach Crete. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, these present one possible idea of where the Cyclops came from. Uh, again, if not an origin story, then perhaps something that informed and strengthened uh, existing beliefs along the way. Yeah, again, that, that seems like an interesting explanatory fit, but I guess there's no way to know for sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we shall get to the dragons. Hey, everybody, do you like TV? Well, I have a feeling the TV likes you because it's about to give you the second season of the hit show, Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot follows Elliot Alderson, played by Rami Malek, a young cybersecurity engineer who becomes involved in the underground hacker group F Society after being recruited by their mysterious leader, played by Christian Slater, an old favorite of mine. Oh, yeah. Uh, following the events of F Society's 5-9 hack on multinational company Evil Corp, the second season is going to explore the consequences of that attack as well as the illusion of control. Now, obviously, this show ties in perfectly with a number of topics we've discussed on the on the show, uh, illusions of perception, uh, uh, some of the more uh, technological-based episodes we've discussed as well. So we think it's a, a no-brainer for listeners out there to, to give it a try. Check it out. And, hey, if you were already on board with Season 1, Season 2 drops Wednesday, July 13th at 10, 9 Central on USA Network. That's Mr. Robot, Season 2, Wednesday, July 13th, 10, 9 Central, only on USA Network. All right, we're back. So one of the obvious things has got to be dragons, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Think about uh, theropod dinosaurs, like uh, you see a Spinosaurus or a Tyrannosaurus rex, Albertosaurus, and any kind of uh, – I mean, they just look so dragon-like. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you see them, you're like, that is a thing that, yeah, it, it guards golden treasure, kind of like the griffin, I guess, uh-huh. and it will uh, bite you in half if you look at it cross-eyed. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard. Like I find with a with a four year old, it, at times it's been a little challenging to describe and to explain that. Okay, this dragon here, this is not real. These were never real. These are purely made up. Mm-hmm. But this dinosaur, this is this is real. This was real. These used to exist. Well, you know, some people make a, a kind of very different, but in a strange way, sort of parallel argument. I I didn't really know this, but if you Google dinosaurs and dragons together, actually you will get a lot of young earth creationist literature. Oh, yeah, really? Uh, I wasn't really aware of this, but apparently some people of that persuasion believe that the dragon myths were created not out of a need to explain fossils, but came out of uh, direct human interactions with dinosaurs. Uh, so le- leaving that belief aside, uh, if you walk among the skeletons of these dinosaurs and you see the fossils, that's really, I think, all you would need to definitely want to come up with some kind of dragon-type creature to explain them. And so, yeah, they may have dreamed up something like we see in various mythological depictions. Uh, But you also, in fact... And and I think I agree with this. Uh, Mayer makes the point that you wouldn't necessarily have to see 
dinosaur fossils to dream up dragons. In fact, the fossils or, or just skeletal remains of many large mammals could easily be taken as dragon-like in nature. Yeah, especially when you start thinking outside of the box of, about what a dragon is. We discussed this a little bit in our Chinese Zodiac episode, because uh-huh. in the, in the, the Asian uh, traditions, you strip away this sort of cliche Western idea, sort of uh, Dungeons and Dragons view of a dragon, and you start trying to describe it. It just becomes this amalgam of different yeah. uh, uh, biological influences. They're less large lizards and more boundary-crossing chimera animals. Yeah. And so all you need is a large rib cage. All you need is, uh, you know, a few bones that clearly don't match up with anything in the world that you have seen. Yeah. Or, uh, some huge skulls in ancient India. That's right. So, uh, so there is a tradition of dragons in India that is attributed to, so a story about the first century CE Greek philosopher Apollonius of Tyana mm-hmm. saying uh, when he when he traveled through the uh, the foothills of the Himalayas and went to northern India Philostratus's story about this is that it was just full of dragon skulls right yeah yeah or not dragon skulls dragons well he basically reported yeah. as fact that hey dragons are everywhere uh-huh. in this area and i've seen the skulls to prove it right um and and indeed there seemed to have been just a number of different uh, Skulls or heads uh, that were laid at the base of a mountain uh, in a place that are referred to as uh, Paraka. Huh. They're kept as trophies. Right. Yeah. Like, like the predator. Yeah, kind of like the predator. Yeah, uh, it and, keeps the skull. And some of these are like, you know, not only are they skulls, but they have crystals inside them in some cases, which seems to represent, you know, the, the supernatural powers, perhaps, of these uh, these creatures. Yeah. Now, so who, who knows where this was actually supposed to take place or if there's any truth to the story of this journey at all uh, about Apollonius. But either way, it could have been inspired by accounts of the region independent of Apollonius. Yeah, there's some speculation that it might uh, match up with um, with uh, Peshawar in modern Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, and, in, and indeed in later times, according to Mayer, a famous a Buddhist holy place near Peshawar was known as "quote the Shrine of the Thousand Heads." Mm, so, what could these heads have been if they were not truly dragon heads? Well, as you as you mentioned, they could have been just about anything. <laughs> um, and this area is just strewn with uh, impressive Pleo uh, Pleistocene era vertebrate fossils. Mm-hmm. So they would have had their pick of pretty impressive dragon heads. Yeah. And and what's more, um, calcite and uh, selenite crystals are very common in the fossilized bones in this area. So this would have led to perhaps to the tales of the gems that are embedded within the dragon's heads. Oh man. Yeah. That's a crazy myth. Gems yeah. inside the dragon head. Yeah. Like yeah, the gems are its brain. Or, you know, some component, maybe its some eyes. Sort of cybernetic component. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. Th- that's another one that uh, that sounds like a very interesting historical explanation. Uh, but then again, uh, we're just sort of like fitting what we know now onto the details of history. So it, it's... It's hard to know for sure if uh, if an explanation like that was true, I think. Yeah. It's interesting. This very same region just below the Himalayas, uh, it, it's also uh, been argued that this may have uh, informed and molded some understandings of um, – of, of, an, of an, a very important event in uh, in Hindu mythology, specifically the uh, dynastic war between the, the the Kauravas and the Pandavas in the uh, epic uh, Mahabharata, mm-hmm. um, and this uh, this idea comes from the uh, the paper Fossil Folklore from India: The Siwalik Hills in the Mahabharata by Alexander Vandergeer, uh, Michael uh, Dermesowitz, and John Devos, and this was published in uh, the, the journal Folklore in 2008. But they basically point out that uh, you have um, you have a number of um, uh, fossil uh, uh, ammonites, for example, that are worshipped as the the disc or chakra of the Hindu god Vishnu. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and that uh, and that indeed this is an area that's rich in vertebrate fossils, and the the authors argue that this region was seen as perhaps the historical stage for this legendary battle that's described in the Mahabharata. Uh, during which hundreds of mighty and sometimes gigantic heroes are are engaging in battle with each other. There are elephants that are uh, war elephants that are said to have uh, fought and die 
wide. So that that kind of makes sense how if you were to find a bunch of fossils all in the same place, you mm-hmm. you might not having an understanding of how things get deposited over geological right. time, you might very well assume that something big went down here. Yeah, surely this was the site of some epic battle. And look at all the strange things that died here. Some of these are clearly elephants because uh-huh. uh, you would have seen a number of prehistoric uh, elephant type species. But also you'd have you know, four horned horn giraffe creatures, uh, giant tortoises, saber toothed cats, different camels. And on top of this, you would have also found lots of ancient uh, bronze javelins and spears. So uh-huh. the archaeological artifacts plus the uh, uh, pa- the paleontological uh, remains would have uh, equaled an influence uh, over the setting and context of the great battle that occurs in this Indian epic. That is really interesting, and I think the, the idea of the density of fossils leading into the differential mythical interpretations and stuff like that, uh, that that's something to keep in mind. Uh, but, but let's go farther east, right, shall we? Okay, let's do it. Um, yeah, let's talk just a little bit about the the Chinese unicorn, the uh, the, the quillen, uh, a creature that is often known and referred to by Westerners as the Chinese unicorn. Uh-huh. And it's worth noting that the that uh, that Western unicorn depictions vary a lot uh, on their own. So uh-huh. you'll have some Western unicorns that look more like a goat, some look more like a horse, sometimes within the same work or series of works, uh-huh. such as the, the the lady in the unicorn tapestries. Um, but the, the Chinese quillen and its various incarnations that you find throughout East Asia, uh, they vary even more. So it's, it's essentially a mystical, sacred forest creature, but there are elements of a deer and other herbivores, and the details vary beyond that. Uh-huh. Um, there's, um, uh, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's, sometimes it has one, sometimes it has two or three fleshy horns, sometimes they're more distinctly antlers. Um, so you can well imagine that in looking at the fossil record, you could easily pick and choose what you want this thing to resemble exactly. in the fossil record. Um, so there are a couple of interesting arguments that are made about it. One is that, um, is that this might, that the origin of this might have been a giraffe. Hmm. Um, so essentially you would have had travelers that, and this is not even fossil related, but the idea that you would have uh, had travelers who ventured out to the, the, the coast of Africa and returned with not only stories of giraffes, but in one case, uh, 1414, the unit commander Ching Ho, uh, would have returned with a giraffe as a tribute to Emperor Yung Lo. And the Somali name for giraffe is also girin, which might have sounded like quillen, and so um, which is a, a word that also uh, is, a, is an emblem of justice to the Chinese. So there's a possibility that that the giraffe might have played some role in the formation or the um, evolution of the idea of a quillen. That's interesting. Now, I know one thing I think I've heard is that uh, different unicorn legends would have to be traceable back to the rhinoceros. Is there anything to that? Well, possibly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's no... This is one another one of those areas where you, you can't really say for sure. Uh-huh. And I tend, like personally looking at information, I tend to doubt some of the connections that are made. Yeah, a lot of people, both for Western and Eastern unicorns, they pull they point to the Elasmotherium, um, which uh, particularly more recent. It's been in the news recently because um, uh, it's been uh, discovered that uh, you actually had humans and Elasmotheriums living uh, side by side in modern-day Kazakhstan a mere 29,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, this according to a recent study published in the American Journal of Applied Sciences. Previous estimates would have placed uh, it outside the 200,000-year run of human history. The Elasmotherium did not look like a Western unicorn. It did not really look like any of the depictions we see of an Eastern unicorn or a, the Quillen. Uh-huh. It really looked like a large prehistoric rhino with a really awesome uh, horn. But there is the idea that if not direct human observation of this creature, then perhaps memories and and stories and an oral Mm -hmm. tradition of encountering it. Or crude illustrations. Yeah, or crude illustrations informed our knowledge of of, of what it is. Um, Now, of course, there are also... Arguments to be made that the quillen is inf- was informed by actual rhinos, uh, more modern rhinos, particularly Sumatran uh, rhinoceroses that that once lived uh, throughout China and still live in uh, in parts of uh, of Asia today. Um, 
and there's some interesting arguments on both sides here, but you definitely see realistic depictions of Sumatran rhinos in Chinese uh, artistic traditions. So there does seem to be a divide between the the the, the pure real world rhino uh, camp and the quillant camp. So uh, again, it remains an open question. Well, Robert, I've got another one, and I want you to take a look at a vase with me. Okay. Do you want to look at a, not a vase, a mixing bowl? Put your eyes on it. Okay, I'm looking at it now. Okay, so this is a, this is an object in the uh, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston that is a late Corinthian mixing bowl from about 550 BCE. And it is, uh, it is described as Heracles, or also known as Hercules, firing arrows while Hesione hurls rocks at a dragon. Presumably this dragon is the monster of Troy, or the Ketos Troyos. Uh, this, this illustration is crazy looking. Uh, yeah. Hercules in it, Heracles, he looks like a robot. <laughs> Straight up robot, right? And then uh, Hesione, of course, is uh, kind of standing there between him and this monster. And I, I don't know, I'll get to the monster in a second. But if you're able to look this up, do so, because it is weird. The monster does not look like a normal monster, as you would expect it to be depicted in classical Greek art. It looks like a big black mass with some sort of white animal skull jutting out of it. So what's going on in this story? Well, in the tradition, uh, Poseidon has a beef a beef with uh, Laomedon, the king of Troy. And so Poseidon, to get back at uh, Laomedon, sends a Ketos, a sea, sea beast, to attack the city. And the Trojans keep the sea monster at bay by sacrificing maidens to it. Ketos is like, okay, maidens are tasty. I can, I can make this work. Um, but at some point, Hercules rolls up to Troy around the same time that the Trojans are about to sacrifice Laomedon's daughter, Hesione, to the monster. And then Hercules saves Hesione by killing the sea beast. But in 2002, Adrian Mayer authored a paper in the Oxford Journal of Archaeology about this illustration on this mixing bowl. And the paper was called The Monster of Troy Vase, the uh, the Earliest Artistic Record of a Vertebrate Fossil Discovery. And uh, Mayer argues that this illustration of the legend of Hercules rescuing Hesione from the Monster of Troy was likely visually inspired by a large fossil skull. So here it's not necessarily the myth itself, but at least this illustration of it. Okay. Um, so the ketos in this illustration does not conform to the Greek style of sea monster art, which was usually created kind of like the griffin tradition by mixing attributes of various different known animals, like head of a lion, body of a snake, or something like that. Instead, features on the illustration cause uh, Mayer to think that the image was inspired by, quote, a large fossil skull of a prehistoric mammal, possibly a Samotherium, which was a giant Miocene giraffoid. Back to uh, giraffes again. I know. that They're so terrifying in the mythic tradition. Uh-huh. And having looked at both myself, I can definitely see the resemblance that would cause somebody to say this, including uh, both the the skull, the skull monster in the picture, and the uh, Samotherium. Ethereum have this L-shaped lower jaw that protrudes from beyond the upper jaw in the front, and then when it hooks up in the L-shape uh, to connect with the rest of the skull, it's sort of right behind where the eyes are, and it's the same in the picture. So um, Mayer also points out that, quote, numerous literary accounts describe exposures of these and similar large mammal fossils in antiquity along the Turkish coast, on the Aegean islands, and on the Greek mainland. I conclude that this vase painting is the earliest artistic record of such a discovery. So the idea here is that the image in the painting uh, is inspired by a giant Samotherium or other large extinct mammal skull jutting out of a cliff, huh, which you may well have found at that time in that place. It's inter- it's almost as if the uh, the artist here they said, all right, well, what does this monster look like? And then someone said, oh, you see that skull up on the cliff? That that might have been what its head was like. And then he did like a direct uh-huh. drawing of it. And they're like, right. oh, you bonehead, that's not what it actually looked like. That's just the skull. <laughs> oh, bonehead, I uh, see what you did there. Yeah. 
By accident. Uh, but seriously, you should look up this mixing bowl. It looks uh, it looks so weird and so great. Yeah, both the um, both the illustration of the monster of the Tro- of Troy and the uh, the actual fossil skull both look very metal. Like they could uh-huh. either one could be on the the cover of a heavy metal album. You do you usually don't think of giraffes as being very metal, but I guess they are, especially when you take all their flesh off. Yeah, and they have the you know, the elongated skull in this case, and the the the, the bony horn uh, lumps on the top of the head. Uh-huh. All right, we're going to return to to China for uh for our, I believe our last specific example here. So, in many regions of China, uh you will find track-bearing fossil slabs that are used uh, they're either sometimes they're used as building materials or at least they're they're integrated into houses, yards, uh in older traditions, uh cave dwellings. Uh, and they serve as uh, auspicious symbols or just mere decorations. But they are essentially the footsteps of dinosaurs. <laughs> wow. And there are records of these going back um, hundreds and hundreds of years of individuals finding these. Uh, people are fascinated with them, and they hold on to them because when you encounter these footsteps, it's kind of like encountering the bones. Here are some, some footsteps in the stone. And you know what footsteps are. You can you can look at these and go, oh, well, that kind of looks like a the, the footsteps of a bird. Uh-huh. But they're set in stone. There's yeah. something weird going on here. There's something supernatural. Must have been a magical bird. Right. So uh, this is where we end up with the idea that these are the footsteps of uh, the golden pheasant, or sometimes uh, referred to as the golden chicken. The, I like golden chicken better. <laughs> the Jinji, or. Um, the, or the golden chicken's claw, Genji Za. And it's regarded as, a, again, an auspicious symbol. Uh, now, the, the golden pheasant is, of course, a real bird, but its elusive nature, its beautiful colors, make it a prime candidate for deification. Mm-hmm. And it's also associated with the uh, Fing Huang, which is a, a mythological bird similar to the Western phoenix. So without the, the knowledge of fossil making, the, the, the maker of these tracks clearly had to be divine. So, uh, so it's an interesting uh, tradition. I read about this in uh, a paper titled Dinosaur Tracks, Myths, and Buildings, um, the Jinji Stones from uh, Zizou area, northern uh, Shanxi, China. It's a 2015 uh, paper. Hmm. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's a more interesting insight into it. And again, it doesn't specifically involve bones, but involves just the, the fossil footsteps. Yeah, oh, that'd still be geomythology, totally. Yeah, yeah totally. But it, but this one I feel like is yeah more of a direct case because yeah. it's individuals saying and and cultures saying here are the footsteps and this is why they're important to us this oh, is what yeah. they mean well that would actually be a really good example then of um, what it looks like when you have a very solid case in geomythology explanations uh-huh. because. Um, I, I mean, with the, with this whole subject, it's very fascinating. I love reading about this stuff. It, it, it's super fun. But very often we're coming up with it's kind of like a evol, uh, evolutionary psychology explanations yeah. that you encounter that can be very cleverly devised. Uh, oftentimes there there's some very compelling kind of it makes sense fitting the evidence together for them. But at the same time. They can feel less solid than a lot of other scientific hypotheses because it's hard for you to make predictions with them. Yeah, at the end of the day, even the best examples of either evolutionary psychology or uh, geomythology, Mm -hmm. I feel like... I'm shaking, I'm nodding my head and saying, yeah, I feel like that could be part of the explanation. Yeah. yeah. So while I, I don't mean to downplay the work people have done on this at all, like I think that, that a whole lot of really, really intelligent uh, research has gone into this subject mm-hmm. and I love reading about it, but it definitely does feel like a softer, squishier science than, than much other science. And one issue that follows from that is this. I, I've been thinking about this question. How hard should we be looking for scientific historical explanations for ancient myths and legends before we conclude that they're most likely explained just from forces inside the mind of the creator, whether that's conscious, imaginative fiction writing or visions or hallucinations, uh, whatever, psychogenic origins? Um, Because if you try to explain every myth, by external facts about the world that we can find evidence of now, it sort of, it can end up taking you to crazy extremes, right? Yeah. 
Uh, one thing that definitely comes to my mind is, y- have you ever heard what the ancient aliens people say about the Bible? Oh, how how, how have I not? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. So, in the uh, quick one, the Book of Ezekiel, the Bible, chapter one, uh, the author says he sees a vision of God. Right. He says, "Quote: As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually, and in the middle of the fire something like gleaming amber. In the middle of it was something like four living creatures. This was their appearance. They were human of human form. Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze." And then later, starting at verse fifteen, as I looked at the living creatures. I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of barrel, and the four of them had the same form, their construction being something like a wheel within a wheel. (laughs) Obviously, flying saucer aliens, right? Ask the internet, it will tell you. (laughs) The author of this passage encountered a flying saucer, aliens, four aliens got out of it, they're, I don't know, they're uh, shape-shifting nanomaterial suits, whatever you want. It's all there. Now, this is a very different and much more extreme hypothesis than fossils explaining mythical creatures, right? Because whereas we actually know that fossils exist, we do not know whether aliens or flying saucers exist, and there are some good arguments concerning interstellar distances, etc., to make us think that even if they do exist, that it's unlikely they've visited Earth. But a similar principle is at play, right? When we encounter an ancient account of a vision or a myth or uh, anything that seems fantastical in any way, do we need to find a naturalistic external explanation for it Apart from psychogenic origins, is it just the the person writing it? Is it their imagination or a vision they saw in their head? Yeah, because otherwise you're limiting an, an ancient individual to some to some sort of really, really ultimately alien uh, mindset where they have no creative thought, they uh-huh. have no pre-existing stories of the fantastic or ideas of the fantastic, and are not susceptible susceptible to hallucination of any sort. Yeah, and they can only they can only make create a written account or a or an oral tradition based on something they directly saw as it is written. Yeah. Then again, people definitely do take inspiration in the fiction and the fantasy they create from events and objects in the real world. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think it's a fool's errand to be no, looking no. for these kind of explanations. But how hard should we look? I guess is the question. Like, when should we just be satisfied that, well, you know, this person probably just had an active imagination and they came up with a with a lion's body and an eagle's head. Wouldn't that be weird? You know, do, do they need to have seen something that made them think of a quadruped with a beak? Yeah, because, I mean, ultimately, if you t- take a skeptical approach, a more even skeptical approach, you can basically say that this person is describing a bunch of um, sort of psychedelic craziness. Yeah. And the religious script for it, uh, that they, they they had to play with says oh well this is God our modern supernatural script is that it's aliens and both are essentially just um, you know fictional scripts that we have to describe something that does not conform to the world yeah if you're going to go with a naturalistic explanation yeah. yeah or it's God I mean just literally it's just that's the actual God appearing before oh sure person. well I mean of course for people who believe in whatever God is fig- uh, figuring into this particular mm-hmm. story that's obviously an option for them for people on the outside of that uh, belief tradition who don't believe in that that's not really an option for them in in explaining where this comes from but it you don't have to go any kind of to any kind of contorted uh, third-party external naturalistic interpretations, you can always just think, well, somebody thought something up. Yeah. (laughs) Of course, we're always at a disadvantage because we're always looking back in hindsight on these examples. Yeah. But what if we we dare to look ahead? What if we dare to imagine what future commentators, future historians, uh, maybe even visitors from outer space, would make of some of the... uh, the mythical constructs that we have today. Yeah, I think that is a fascinating question. It's something that Adrian Mayer brings up in her uh, geomythology entry that I talked about earlier mm-hmm. in the Encyclopedia of uh, of Geology. She points out the uh, the storage of transuranic radioactive waste, 
Have you ever heard about the intentional creation of geomyths with relation to this? No, I don't believe I have. Okay, so the problem is, mm-hmm. uh, once you have high-level radioactive waste, uh, after, you know, it comes out of, uh, it comes out of a nuclear reactor, you gotta store it somewhere, preferably somewhere underground, and this stuff will remain dangerous for thousands of years. Far, far beyond the lifespan of, of, you know, the United States already. I mean, so much changes on the surface of the earth in the amount of time that this stuff remains dangerous. How do you come up with ways of keeping people away from it that are going to last that long? Uh. You can lock it up in a building, but what if future people come across this building and say, hmm, something's locked in there, might be valuable, maybe we should get inside, and then, of course, they sicken and die. Um, or you could try to put up signs that say, warning, this is poisonous, stay away from it, it will hurt you. Uh, will the people of the future remember why those signs were there and believe you? Or will they even speak the same language as you? Will they be able to read them? Uh, so this, this is a, a problem. And so one solution, as mentioned by Mayer, is uh, some people have suggested, what if we create geomyths about radioactive storage sites, thus creating intentionally a mythology that says don't go near these places because they're full of curses that will destroy you. Huh. Well, that's it. Like the like one idea that comes to mind is you just go ahead and put an image of Godzilla there. Right. And then they'll think, oh, well, no one will come near because they'll see the image of Godzilla and but then I, there's a monster. I always go toward images of Godzilla. Right. Yeah. And, but, and then also they might think, oh, there's an image of a large dinosaur here. There must be a bunch of dinosaur bones in there. Uh-huh. Which gets into a whole other idea, like well, how would you make sense of of Godzilla? Yeah. If you if you were taking a geo uh, mythological approach, you might say, oh, they were inspired by dinosaurs and their love of dinosaurs, which is partially true. Yeah. Godzilla is is undeniably informed by our love of something like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's a lot more to the fabric of Godzilla's identity as well, tying in. Uh, the horrors of atomic war and, and radioactive anxiety. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that's a great example of the the sort of uh, complex polyfunctional nature of myth and the polygenic nature of myth. It, it comes from all over the place. Godzilla isn't just that somebody saw a T-Rex skeleton. Yeah, you got to be careful when you're playing with myth because if you approach it from a very uh, you know one-dimensional framework, you're 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 playing with a multi-dimensional object. Uh, I mean, I, I imagine even the Bene Gesserits have some problems with this. <laughs> I mean, what else about today, apart from our radioactive waste storage facilities, what else about today can you imagine? Let's say, you know, Mad Max scenario happens uh, and we lose a lot of the connection with, with history and culture and mm-hmm. future generations are just dealing with our remains and our artifacts to try and figure out what happened what geomyths might they have about the present day? What uh, what mythological creatures would uh, would they invent when coming upon a Google server farm? Ooh, hmm. Man, I don't know. I mean, maybe Transformers? Yeah? I mean, Transformers are either robots that turn into cars or cars that turn into robots. I mean, they are real-world technological objects that become unreal, sentient robot creatures. So that might be a complex one for uh, for future uh, commentators to figure out. What uh, is a transformer and why? Well, yeah, I mean, it's so when I think about a server farm and I imagine, uh, okay, so I have no scientific knowledge, I have no technological knowledge, I just come across this facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one thing that seems to be clear about it is it's a gigantic building and nobody lived inside it. Oh, and so it must, okay, yeah, so you're talking specifically about such like the server farms that show up in, say, Silicon Valley, where it's just a massive, massive room with just rows upon rows of these boxes, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, surely you can think of something strange about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it instantly <laughs> Maybe seems- Maybe it's a maze for a minotaur. Maybe so, yeah. yeah. Or, uh, yeah, or a tomb of some kind. Uh-huh. Um, Maybe it is a tomb because the people of the past have uploaded their consciousness into these servers and that's where they still exist. Oh yeah, it's running in there and they're just having, imagine how detached from reality their uh, simulations are at this point. You know, I'm really curious now to hear what y'all out there, what uh, you listeners are going to have to say about the geomyths of the present. Yeah, yeah, because I'm sure we're missing some really key ones because there's, there's just so much 
there's so much weird stuff that we have in our pop culture these days that mm-hmm. is much like a myth. It is it is polyfunctional. Yeah. It's not just you know the cartoon image that it portrays. It's informed by all these other ideas and. Uh, uh, and certainly when we get into some of the strange memes out there, memes that continually evolve, uh, both intentionally and just as a byproduct of life online. Absolutely. Uh, so, Robert, one last question for yes. you. H- how convinced are you? Looking at uh, these arguments uh, for mythological creatures inspired by fossils and, and uh, remains of extinct animals, what what do you think? Do, do they figure in in the creation of this myth- these mythological creatures? And if so, how often? I tend to buy – I'm not saying that that they never play into the creation of myths. Yeah. But I tend to favor that midpoint argument where where some version of the myth is preexisting and then fossils are, are observed and the, the two inform each other. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um I, I I think I'm somewhere in the middle too. I'm I'm not uh I'm not wholly on board, but I I really love these ideas. I, I very much want them to be true. Yeah. Because I love the idea of people reckoning with the geofacts of their surroundings by using the the darkest parts of their imagination. Yeah, and you know it ties in nicely with the episode we also recorded this week on uh, our desire for complete narratives and complete understandings. Uh-huh. Like there's a there's a beautiful simplicity to geomythology. That it, that is so attractive and that you could just so succinctly explain this fantastic creature. Uh, however, it seems, it seems very rare that such a succinct, uh, explanation would be the only explanation for, for something that, uh, that has so many facets to it. I think they convinced me on the golden chicken. The, go- the golden chicken. With, I like the I'm golden chicken. One. There. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good one. All right. So, hey, uh, if you want to check out uh, some of the some links to some of the things we're talking about here, uh, maybe an image or two, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find uh, all the podcast episodes, including the landing page for this episode with those cool outgoing links. And uh, you'll also find links to our social media accounts, such as Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Tumblr. We maintain all those social media accounts. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know your ideas about the future geomythology of the present or any other uh, reactions to this episode, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.